and welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Fivoli, Staff Actuary, Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. For some time now, Canadian actuaries have been interested in having more of a presence in the banking sector. In some other countries, most notably South Africa, the profession has made significantly more headway. In order to help us understand a bit more about the differences between the two countries, we are joined today by Roli Malisho, a CIA member who is also a fellow of the Actuarial Society of South Africa. Thanks very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks. It's good to be here, Chris. So to start off, maybe if you could just introduce yourself and uh, give us a brief overview of your career so far. So hi, everybody. My name is Roli, Roli Malisho. I have a longer name, but I think Roli is just an easier one. In terms of my path towards where I am right now, I would say that um, I started off my journey in 2012 when I graduated from the University of Cape Town. I got a degree in actuarial science and I started working in the life insurance industry within South Africa for a company called Old Mutual. And I stayed there for about five years covering different roles, but mainly roles related to pricing, valuations and regulatory capital. And after those five years, I decided to make the transition to Canada for various reasons. I also wanted to get exposure to the Canadian financial system. So I made the transition to Canada and it was around the same time when I was writing my final fellowship exam or studying for the final fellowship exam. And I had gained some exposure to the banking syllabus that the Actuarial Society of South Africa had released. And I started familiarizing myself with the concepts in banking. And that's why it was almost a natural transition when I came to Canada to look for work within the banking field. And so I applied at a couple of different banks. I got a couple of interviews and I eventually ended up getting a job with a company called Firstone Financial, which is actually or used to be the retail lending arm of Citigroup in Canada. Canada, and I landed a role there that was mainly concerned with IFRS 9, so impairment provisioning. And I spent about three and a half years, and most recently I've made a transition to a new role with Laurentian Bank Financial Group, um, dealing with regulatory capital. Okay, I was hoping we could go back and talk a little bit more about uh, the actuarial environment in South Africa. So things like the qualification process, where actuaries typically work, and and just how well-known the profession is in that country. So what similarities and differences do you see comparing the profession in South Africa with what we have in Canada? Okay, let me cover each um, aspect separately. So in terms of the qualification process, I would say that there are quite a lot of similarities between South Africa and Canada. And if if I had to use like a comparative uh, actuarial organization that South Africa's uh, qualification process most closely resembles is the institutes and faculty of actuaries in the UK. In fact, the elementary exams that we write for us are actually through the institutes. So there's a lot of similarity between the processes across actuarial bodies, particularly ESSA and IFOA and also the FSA process. So you've got those foundational technical exams some of which you can get an exemption from if you've done, you know, a relevant university course. And once you've finished those foundational technical subjects, you've got to write a couple of, you know, application-based subjects, things that touch on normative aspects like communication and business awareness. And essentially, once you've passed those elementary exams, you have academically qualified to be an associate. There are additional requirements such as attending a professionalism course and having one year's worth of work-based experience. 
And should you want to pursue full qualification as a fellow, you would need to write an additional three exams and do a generic practice module. And you'd have to complete an additional two years worth of work-based experience and do a professionalism course. And then you can hold the title of a fellow. So there's quite a lot of similarities with the process in Canada and in other actuarial bodies across the world. Now, in terms of where actuaries actually work, I would say that, again, there is similarity with Canada. I think in Canada, you know, the bulk of actuaries are concentrated within, you know, the traditional fields of life insurance, pensions, and PNC. And it's pretty similar in South Africa. Most actuaries work in those fields. However, I would say that the degree of concentration probably isn't as strong as Canada. So actuaries are more dispersed across even the non-traditional areas. And I would say that one of the non-traditional areas where actuaries have recently been gaining more involvement is banking. And that's perhaps what's different or unique about South Africa. It's the presence of actuaries in a non-traditional area where there's a much larger share. In terms of, you know, the general knowledge and the general acceptance of actuaries within, you know, the, the public and, and the financial industry, one thing I would say in South Africa is that, and, and I think this, this might be the case in Canada as well, it's very difficult if you walk up to a person on the street and you ask them, what, what is an actuary, right? It's very difficult for them to give you a straight answer because very few people understand exactly what it is that actuaries do. But for those who are aware of actuarial science, their knowledge is kind of limited to the perception that actuaries are well paid. It's a lucrative career. It's a lucrative profession. And they must be smart in some sense because they have a, a good grounding of a lot of technical subjects like maths and stats. So I'd say that the knowledge of what actuaries actually do is quite limited. But there is positive perception in terms of the actuarial career path being rewarding. And, and part of that is also because of the high demand for actuaries, given the skill shortage in the South African labor market. And I think, you know, fully qualified actuaries have like a 0% unemployment rate. So I think from that perspective, there is quite a good perception, especially within the financial industry of actuaries in South Africa. Okay, let's talk about that a little bit more specifically with their success in the banking sector. What's been the secret to actuaries getting a foothold in banking in South Africa? And, and what typically what kind of work would they do in the banking environment? In terms of banking in South Africa, I would say there's a couple of um, factors that have played into the success story in South Africa. And I think one of the most important factors is just the, the evolving regulations around banking. So back in 2007, 2008, we, as you all know, we had the global financial crisis. And I think shortly after that, discussions started floating around as to how it is that, you know, banking regulators across the world could, you know, improve their capital adequacy framework. And also, I think the crisis exposed a lot of the problems that banks faced with liquidity risks. So there was also discussions ongoing around how they could incorporate more aspects related to liquidity adequacy. And those discussions eventually culminated into what is known as Basel III today. And there were also other discussions that took place, which culminated in IFRS 9. The Actuarial Society of South Africa 
had been very aware of this very early on, right? So they started planning strategically from a very early stage as to how they could position actuaries to take advantage of the need that had arisen because of these evolving regulations. And so you have that, you can call it almost a, a mixture of the arising of a need because of evolving regulations and also the strategic positioning of the Actuarial Society of South Africa, which, which enabled um, actuaries to essentially increase their presence within banks, willing to accept actuaries. Part of the reason why is because banks had a bit of familiarity with you know, insurance where actuaries are traditionally in, involved because of the abundance of bank assurance partnerships in South Africa. And another reason is because of the skill shortage, right? So they're hiring from a limited pool of resources when it comes to people with mathematical and statistical backgrounds because it is quite you know, in shortage in South Africa, especially amongst graduates. So they were more willing to embrace actuaries and the Actuarial Society of South Africa did a good job in promoting the role of actuaries and also equipping actuaries to practice within banking. They eventually developed a syllabus and a subject for banking, which has really helped to prepare actuaries. And I'd say those two merged quite well. And today we have a situation where actuaries, they have quite a significant presence in the banking industry and banks are actually one of the primary I can say recruiters and employers of actuarial graduates in South Africa. So it's been a journey. And there was a second question in terms of the roles that they actually fall. So I would say that the actuarial skill set naturally lends itself to a lot of the concepts that arise in credit risk. So a lot of banking actuaries practice in credit risk space, dealing with things such as impairment provisioning, which is IFRS 9, which we'll probably discuss a little bit later on. And they also are usually employed in roles that have to do with capital adequacy requirements, which is related to Basel 3. But there are other, I would say, non-credit risk related areas of a bank that I think actuaries can actually, you know, play a role in. And there are actually some actuaries in these areas, and this would include things such as market risk, especially for actuaries who have a training in investments and for banks that have um, what we call a trading book, right? So their business model is basically the buying and the selling of assets, right? Um, to make a profit. So I'd, I'd say there's a lot of market risks that arise um, that actuaries can lend their involvement to. There's also liquidity risk, which is a crucial risk for banks, given the business model, which is one whereby there's maturity transformation in that banks are taking short-term deposits and they're repurposing them into long-term loans. So there's a natural asset liability mismatch there. And actuaries with an understanding of balance sheet management and asset liability management can definitely lend their expertise to help banks manage that liquidity risk. Let's take a minute and talk about what you've been working on since you've come to Canada, that items that are related to the banking sector. So, yeah, I think the majority of my work has been within the credit risk space, particularly with IFRS 9. And for those who aren't aware, I'll just give a brief overview of what IFRS 9 entails. So essentially, we're coming from a framework, the previous framework, which was called International Accounting Standard 39 where banks basically had to hold, you know, provisions on their book for, for credit losses. But the problem with the previous framework is that banks would only recognize losses on a, an exposure if there was objective evidence of impairment. And the problem with that uh, methodology is that it's often criticized as being pro-cyclical. So it results in banks 
raising their provisions when they most need it, which is in times of crisis, because you're, you're recognizing the loss too late, only once there's objective evidence of impairment. So they tried to refine the framework and, and it eventually culminated in IFRS 9, which aims to be a little bit more you know, forward-looking and reduce the amount of pro-cyclicality in the reserving. And it does so by incorporating forward-looking factors in the, in the forecasting of losses. So as you can see, the previous framework had almost little scope or no scope for forecasting, whereas the new framework is forward-looking in nature and it requires you to forecast losses going forward on your entire portfolio, not just so you're holding a provision for your entire portfolio as opposed to just holding a provision for those loans that have become defaulted. So that's just a broad overview of the, the rationale behind IFRS 9. And in terms of what we actually do with the accounting framework, we calculate essentially reserves for, for a portfolio of loans. And I would say that the unique area of my involvement has been the validation of the models that go into, you know, producing the, the reserve results. So I, I've, I've had a validation role in terms of vetting the inputs that go into the model, making sure that the model is fit for purpose, making sure that the output of the model is reasonable and makes business sense, and also helping to handle audit queries that might arise, you know, as a result of the output of the model. And there's also periodic work that we do with regards to the, the refreshing of the model and the redevelopment of the model, making sure that, you know, the model is still doing what it was intended to do and making sure that, you know, there, there haven't been, you know, dramatic changes in, in, in the exposure that might render the model, you know, invalid. So I would say a lot of my work has been around the, the modeling side. One of the interesting parts of the work that I do came actually with the COVID-19 pandemic, where there was a situation during the first wave where the government had to pose lockdowns. And because the models are forward-looking, they rely on macroeconomic variable forecasts, such as the unemployment rate, for instance. And it was quite interesting during that period, because during the lockdowns, unemployment rates you know, shot through the roof. But um, that didn't necessarily mean that individuals were unable to meet their debt obligations, primarily because the government had introduced some federal stimulus programs to provide income support for individuals. So um, it was quite interesting during that time to see how it was that we could adjust our models or make post-model adjustments to incorporate the fact that, you know, just purely running the unemployment rate forecast through our models would probably give invalid results. So there was a lot of judgment involved. There, there was a lot of documentation that had to take place, and I'd say that's probably been one of the most unique aspects of my career within the banking space, is just handling this new accounting framework, but with the challenges that COVID brought. Going forward in my new role, I'll be dealing with a lot of things related to regulatory capital adequacy requirements. So this is Basel three capital adequacy requirements, and I think the reforms to Basel three have just been finalized. So OSOFI has um, released new guidelines on Basel III, particularly for banks in Canada. And um, a lot of my work will be around the interpretation of those guidelines, the implementation of those guidelines, and also assisting with accreditation process for um, ratings-based approaches. Okay, you've touched on credit risk modeling a couple of times, and I find that really interesting, primarily because I understand absolutely nothing about it. So for somebody that has no exposure to credit risk modeling and management, well, what are some of the things that go into this type of work from an actuarial perspective? I'm just curious how you would model that sort of a risk. 
Credit risk modeling is quite an interesting field. And I have to start off with a disclaimer that there are many, many, many methods that can be used to model credit risk. And I, I simply wouldn't have the time to cover them all, nor do I think I'd be able to. But I can touch on a few of the methods that I've encountered in my work, particularly with IFRS 9. Just again, as a disclaimer, which model you use will depend on your use case, right? So banks model credit risk for different purposes. Some banks require an understanding of credit risks for the purposes of internal business forecasting. Some banks require it for stress testing purposes. So um, something that they call the ICAP, which is your internal capital adequacy and assessment process, which is a business exercise, but it's it's also something that's reviewed by the regulators. So some some banks require the modeling of credit risks and particularly credit losses for, for stress testing purposes. Other banks require it for compliance with the, the capital adequacy requirements and counting standards, IFRS 9 and Basel 3. So the use case to which it has been put to use, right, will determine which modeling approach is most appropriate. And, and the use case that I'm most familiar with is the counting standards, right, the IFRS 9. And I'd say the industry standard model for credit risk model. And then, and then essentially what I mean by credit risk, I mean the, the risk that a borrower is unable to meet their debt obligations. And how do you quantify that? How do you measure you know, the, the potential loss of that borrower or the expected credit loss of that borrower? And the, the industry stranded model for that is the, the PDEAD, LGD model, which essentially stands for probability of default, exposure at default, and the loss given default. And those are three different components that are often modeled separately. And once you, you, you've estimated parameters for each component, you're able to put them together into a nice equation and, and you, you're able to generate cash flows in the future. And, and you would obviously apply discounting. So it's very similar to discounted cash flow valuations that most actuaries practicing in life insurance especially would be familiar with. Now, let me touch on like just a few specifics of each component. So, and, and I'll, I'll try to draw some parallels with uh, concepts that, that are familiar to those who are practicing in the more traditional fields. So consider, for instance, the probability of an account going default. There's a lot of similarity between that and a lot of the techniques that would be used in survival analysis in life insurance. Within the life insurance space, you would essentially be trying to understand what's the likelihood of a person dying. So your contingent event is death, whereas within the banking space, your contingent event of interest is you know, default, which is often defined as a certain amount of missed payments or some form of adverse credit event like a person becoming bankrupt. So it is it is a, a variable that you would need to define in your data set. You would need to basically flag all accounts that defaulted over a period of time. So your target variable would essentially be the default rate, right? And to be a little bit more specific, it would be the conditional default rate. So if you draw a parallel to life insurance, basic survival modeling, for instance, the probability that a person is alive at the beginning of a study would be one. And then you've got the probability. So given that they're alive at the beginning, what's the probability that they die over the next period? And you can calculate those conditional probabilities and you chain link them in order to be able to get a marginal probability of default at each point or probability of death at each point of time. And a similar concept applies in, in, in the 
banking space where you would model your conditional probabilities of default and you'd use a, a similar chain linking process to what you would use in life insurance in order to get your unconditional or your, your, your marginal probabilities of default, which you would use in your cash flows at each point in time. And the, the usefulness of that is because, for instance, IFRS 9 requires you to calculate different probabilities of default depending on the credit quality of the loan. So for loans that are of good credit quality, they would call them stage one loans. These are loans that have not defaulted. These loans would basically be reserved for based on 12 months or the next 12 months worth of losses. Whereas loans that have experienced an adverse credit event would be labeled either as stage two or stage three, depending on the severity of the credit event. And these loans would generally be reserved for on a lifetime basis. So the duration of your cash flow projection depends on the credit quality of your loan. And then likewise, the probability of default that you're using, whether it's a 12-month probability of default or a lifetime probability of default, depends on credit quality and the usefulness of the survival analysis methodologies. It enables you to chain link your, your probabilities in order to calculate 12-month and, and lifetime probabilities of default. In terms of the actual estimation of those probabilities, there are a lot of techniques that actuaries might be familiar with and that they might have gotten exposure to in their earlier statistical subjects. So generalized linear model techniques, uh, I think the most common one for the probability of default would be binomial logistic regression, which will enable you to estimate probability of default based on certain predictor variables. Oftentimes, those predictor variables depend on endogenous attributes of the account. So, you know, the account status, the, the credit score of the account, the utilization of the account. So features of the account that might be able to give an indication of how likely an account is to become default. And you would also, for the purposes of IFRS 9, you need to incorporate an exogenous component to your default rates, which is related or linked to the macroeconomic um, environment. So the beauty of using this binomial logistic regression is that you can incorporate both endogenous and exogenous predictor variables in order to estimate your default rates. That's just, uh, I would say, a high-level summary of one of the ways in which you can model your probability of default. In terms of the other two components, which is your exposure at default and your loss given default, they would be modeled in pretty similar ways. So your exposure at default is essentially trying to estimate what or how much has your principal balance liquidated by the time an account becomes default. And typically in the industry, what they do is they model the credit conversion factor, which is essentially your, your balance at default as a proportion of your balance at origination. Then that credit conversion factor can be modeled using similar generalized linear model techniques such as logistic regression. You can even use linear regression. If the problem is simple, you can use beta regression as well. So it's a pretty similar technique that you would use to estimate that credit conversion factor. And then once you've got that credit conversion factor, you just apply it to your outstanding loan balance at origination to get an idea of how much of the loan balance is still outstanding by the time an account has become defaulted. And then for your loss given default, you're essentially trying to figure out, you know, how much are you able to collect or recover on that loan balance, you know, after it's defaulted. So typically what would happen is you would model the recovery rates that occur after default. 
um, and then that can also be modeled in a similar way. And just as a high level, each of these these three components, your probability of default, your credit conversion factor, which goes into your exposure at default and your loss given default, each of these three factors are, are variables that lie within the space of zero and one. That's why it's easy to apply methods such as your, your, your logistic regression to estimate each of these three parameters. And once you're able to estimate all three of those parameters, it's just simply a matter of taking the product of all three and of course because these parameters are estimated with a term structure you'll be able to have cash flows at each future point in time and you would use a basic discounted cash flow valuation technique to get your expected present value which would be a net value because your loss given default is taking account of recoveries so that's just a very high level of how you would actually model your credit losses for accounting or IFRS 9 purposes. There are other purposes such as regulatory capital where the focus is not so much on your expected credit losses, but it's on your unexpected credit losses. So a familiar technique that some actuaries who have done investments will be familiar with is value at risk. So the whole concept of your regulatory capital is you're trying to estimate the value at risk over a given holding period, which is typically 12 months, though you're able to make a maturity adjustment if your exposures are a bit longer term and given a certain degree of confidence. That's the whole idea behind the, the regulatory capital. So you're not holding capital for your expected losses, but your unexpected losses. And how that would actually be modeled is very similar to what we did on the expected credit losses side, except instead of using your probability of default, you would be using you know, the difference between your worst case or your value at risk default rate and your normal expected default rate um, in order to get that estimation of the unexpected credit losses. Now, in order to estimate that worst case default rate, there are a lot of techniques available, but the prescribed on by the regulators is typically um, what they call a copula, which I think actuaries who have done the certified enterprise risk risk analyst designation, the CIRA designation might be familiar with. So you would actually use copulas to estimate your worst case default rate. So the copulas enable you to get dependent structure and, and, and incorporate correlations into your worst case default rate. And once you've estimated that, you would similarly apply it to your exposure at default. You would apply loss given default. Oftentimes these may be prescribed by regulators, but um, the more internal based approaches allow you to estimate them yourself. And once once you take the product of those three, you've essentially got what they would call your, your risk-weighted assets. Um, you do need to convert it using a scaling factor, but it essentially gives you a risk-weighted asset amount, and that's essentially used to determine the level of capital that banks should hold. Yeah, I mean, there's so much that can be discussed, other alternative techniques, but I've just tried to touch on the ones that are most common. I would say that there are other models available as well that I've come across besides the PDEAD LGD model. And then again, the high level objective of, of these different models is to estimate your credit losses. So there are other models um, such as roll rate models, which is very similar to what actuaries will be familiar with in terms of Markov chains and transition modeling, so multi-stage transition modeling. So essentially what you're trying to accomplish with a roll rate model, you're trying to 
estimate based on your current loan balances what proportion of those loan balances will flow to the different stages of delinquency. So for instance, life and health insurance, your states might be stuff like healthy, sick, dead, whereas in banking, your states would be, you know, your current, you've had no missed payments or you've missed one payment, two payments and so forth until the loan gets written off, which is the equivalent of death for a loan. So you could use that whole multi-state Markov chain modeling framework in order to model credit losses using a raw rate framework. And once you've estimated the transition rates between the different um, states or the different delinquency buckets all the way to charge off, you're able to apply them to your current exposures and to get a fairly good idea of losses that might emerge in the future. There's so many more that I could discuss as to how exactly you model credit losses or credit risks, but I think just touching on those two gives a very broad idea of what actuaries can lend their expertise to and how it relates to what they might already be familiar with. So generalized linear models, the Markov chains, the survival analysis techniques. In terms of the second part of your question, I think you had mentioned how is it that we actually go managing the credit risks. So I've touched on the modeling of the credit risks aspect at a very high level. In terms of the actual management of those credit risks, it, it all depends on the credit life cycle and different areas within the credit life cycle can have different risks management techniques applied to them. So I would say at the very beginning of the credit life cycle, which is when you're actually writing the new business or you're originating a loan, there are various things that you can do in terms of segmenting your population and identifying those segments of the population that are most profitable to target. That's one area in which you can go about setting up your origination strategy in order to make sure that you're writing profitable risks. That's one area of risk management. There's also underwriting strategy where there's a lot of similarities to underwriting in life insurance. you're basically trying to just make sure that the people that you're extending money to are in a position to repay their debts. There's often what we call the seize of credit. So making sure that, you know, you have adequate collateral, making sure that you understand the character of the borrower, the capacity of the borrower to repay. There's a lot of principles that go into underwriting of credit risks that actually map the stuff that's done in the life insurance space. And the whole point of credit risk underwriting is just to make sure that the risks or the people that you're extending loans to are actually able to pay the loans back. Similar or related to the underwriting and originations is the scoring side of things, which is essentially the building and the developing of credit scorecards, which essentially try to assign a credit score, which is you know some indicator of the credit quality of a borrower. So it's one of the metrics that are actually used in the underwriting process. And there are a lot of actuarial techniques that can be actually used to score individual borrowers. And there's also pricing. So you want to make sure that you're adequately allowing for the risk associated with the loans within your pricing structure. So there's a lot of areas of risk management within the front end originations underwriting pricing side. There's also the ongoing account management where you'll have your portfolio monitoring. So most banks have risk control or risk management committees where they regularly monitor their exposures to the different um, risks that they've taken on books and making sure that those exposures are within their risk tolerance as stated in their risk appetite framework. So portfolio monitoring is a big part of ongoing credit risk management for banks. There's also other aspects of credit risk management um, later on in the credit life cycle. So once loans have become delinquent, banks often try to salvage what they 
they can on the loans. So this is what is known as collections. Banks might start to collect on loans and there's a lot of strategies that go into understanding, you know, which accounts, these are delinquent accounts, of course, which accounts are most worthwhile pursuing in terms of collection strategy in order to recover um, principal balances. And I, I think those are just a couple of the aspects in terms of the managing of credit risk. Of course, we've already touched on provisioning and capital, which isn't a risk management technique per se, but it does sort of make sure that, you know, in the event of losses arising, you've got adequate provisions and capital to help you weather the storm. I know it's it's quite a lot that I've covered, but this is just the general idea of how you can model and manage credit risks within a bank. Yeah, that was very helpful in terms of understanding the whole aspect of credit risk modeling. So thank you very much for that. And thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Chris. We now have over 100 episodes in our podcast series from the past three years. So we encourage you all to subscribe and you can do so through whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you like today's episode, we'd like you to leave us a five-star rating or a comment. And we always like to hear from you. So if you have any suggestions or episode ideas, you can send them to podcasts at cia-ica.ca. And we're always looking for content for our Seeing Beyond Risk blog. So if you have some ideas you'd like to share, you can reach out to us at seeingbeyondrisk at cia ICA.ca. Until next time, I'm Chris Vivoli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk. 